physical therapist who treats athletes from all levels, from those just starting out to high-level professional athletes. It all started out with a back injury when skiing moguls at 18. By six months, his body recovered, and then spontaneously at 22, the back pain returned. Reflecting on the experience years later, the explanation seemed to lie in his then-life stressors. From an early-on strict biomechanical approach to a now more mind-body approach to healing, Charlie Merrill is changing how we think and speak to people about pain. Enjoy our conversation. So welcome to another episode of the Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine podcast, where we share clinical stories and pearls related to osteopathic medicine. We have a special episode tonight. I am honored to have as a co-host for this episode, Dr. Jesse Guasco, DO, a psychiatrist and manual medicine physician. He shared his insight into pain as being more than somatic dysfunction in episode 21. Appreciate your help and insight into the conversation this evening, Dr. Guasco. Our guest is a Glad physical therapist and the founder of Merrill Performance in Boulder, Colorado. He's synthesized treatment of the mind and body for over 20 years to support people in returning to a high, a high level of performance in their lives. In his practice, he combines traditional hands-on manual therapy care with a novel mind-body approach to treat a wide range of clients, including some of the best runners, cyclists, rock climbers, and crossfitters in the world. He has co-created the course Beyond Pain Education with Dr. Howard Schubiner, MD, to educate and mentor clinicians who are traditionally body-orientated on how to transition toward a more psychosocially informed approach to pain and function. He is an inventor patenting the rogue mobility hand to help athletes mobilize their own bodies. Currently, he is designing and creating a minimalist shoe prototype. He's a content creator appearing on numerous podcasts. He has his own YouTube channel titled Merrill Performance and is active on social media supporting people in pain. There's more. He is involved in clinical research and consults in the technology space, currently with Lynn Health a digital health platform that aims to scale evidence-based pain care. He serves on the medical advisory board for the Better Mind Center. Thank you for joining us on the podcast this evening and sharing with us your many years of clinical experience, Charlie Merrill. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to spend, spend my Friday evening with you too. It's really an honor. Yeah, well, it's, it's a great honor for us. For you, you know, taking taking time away from the many hats that you wear, including being a husband and father, to uh, share your clinical experience with us. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate you all too. It's not often I get to talk about mind body stuff with with clinicians that are sort of coming from this sort of strong, you know, manual therapy background. So I'm really excited to see where this goes. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. You know, I just, Dr. Guasco and I were talking about this earlier. I just finished a six week rotation with him and uh, Dr. Guasco was teaching me all about mind body medicine. And he said, you know, we need to talk to this guy, Charlie Merrill, because he does 
what we do and incorporates mind body medicine. (laughs) Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny. I, I had, I always sort of had this appreciation for osteopathic medicine because when I was learning it, um, I realized that it was sort of handed down to us by bone setters and chiropractors and osteopathic physicians over time. And I I always sort of held it with high regard thinking like, this is a real gift, right? That we're giving to people the ability to, to put our hands on them and touch them and heal them. Um, And so I've I've always had great respect for osteopathic medicine, knowing that's the roots of a lot of the stuff that I've learned over time. Yeah, absolutely. Before we dive into the conversation a little bit more, Charlie, if we could get to know you just a little bit outside of your physical therapy practice and, and uh, your life in healthcare. So, so what are some of your hobbies outside of medicine? Oh, man. Well, first of all, I, I probably need to make my bio a little shorter. I really appreciate the introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've said much longer. Don't worry. That was okay. <laughs> okay. I'm a little self-conscious. Um, so, yeah, I have three kids. They're all teenagers. I live here in Boulder, Colorado. I've lived here for 30 years. And I moved here after growing up in Washington, D.C. area on the East Coast because I wanted to be in the mountains. And so that's really led to to me really embracing all sorts of different types of ways to move my body recreationally from, you know, skiing to tennis and golf, but then also more of this endurance sport um, direction of running and cycling. And, you know, I, 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 I kind of joke that there's, there are very few sports that I haven't tried. Um, I just met a client who was from the UK and she played some obscure sport that I'd never heard of. And I was like, Oh, that's one sport I haven't tried. So what was that sport? I, I, um, I almost don't remember the name. It was like a, it was like a handball variation. Oh, okay. Um, okay. I, I forget what she called it, but I'd never heard of it. And I was like, yeah, okay. I never tried that. <laughs> yeah. But I, I just like, you know, as I'm approaching 50, I'm really appreciating being in my body in lots of different ways and exploring new things and new ways to move, including jumping on the trampoline with my kids and learning how to do flips and twists and, um, you know, sort of, um, uh, yeah, I, I guess that's it, like exploring novelty. And we'll probably come back to this at some point, but I'm really appreciating as I'm getting older um, how important it is to bring novelty into my movement practice. Yeah, absolutely. And novelty, I think, also seems to spark a lot of joy in life. Um, definitely. Yeah, no, no question. What about a book recommendation? Oh, wow. Um, you're going to pin me down right at the beginning here. Well, <laughs> I, I'm going to I'm going to use one that I recommended to a client today. And that's the that's the alchemist. Um, Mm. and you know, it's a book that I read like once a decade because I think it's good to like remediate and go back and remember, but you know, it's, it's sort of this idea, right. That the universe sort of guides you in the direction you need to go. And, um, it sort of helps you out when you're going the right direction. And I really like this idea because it's, that's been my experience professionally, but I also find that patients, and people in pain um, also benefit from trusting their gut when something's not working. It's, it's often that their nervous system doesn't want that thing. 
And when something is working and there's sort of some ease in whatever they're trying, that's telling, right? And I like to teach people to trust that instinct. And so the alchemist, I think, makes that point right in a beautiful way. That's great. Thank you for that recommendation. Sure. What about a documentary or movie recommendation? Hmm. Interesting. Um, I'm going to pick an obscure one. So I'm going to have to look up the name of it while we're talking here um, because um, this is a documentary about a guy who decided to ride up the whole enchilada trail. And for those of you that don't know what that is, this is a basically a downhill trail in Moab, Utah. Oh, yeah. That people drive to the top, they get shuttled, and then they ride down. It's an incredible ride from the LaSalle Mountains back to the town of Moab. And this mountain biker decided he wanted to ride up it. It's called 8,600 Feet. It's the name of the documentary. Nice. His name is Braden um, Bringhurst. And the reason I loved it isn't so much the ride itself, although it's pretty amazing how he, you know, his per perseverance and his resilience in this process. But there's a lot of talk about sports psychology in this particular documentary about mindset and positive self-talk. And I thought that part was really inspiring. Yeah. Where do you find that? Is that on Netflix or? Um, I think I saw it on, um, I think I saw it on, YouTube first, and then I had to look. Okay. At it, so, yeah, I'm definitely going to take a look at that. I I've been to Moab a few times mountain biking, and that is a beautiful, beautiful country. Yeah, it's pretty special. It is much like Boulder, Colorado. So I'm pretty jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're pretty lucky. So Charlie, let's dive into how how did you initially become interested in becoming a physical therapist? Um, yeah, so to go way back, you know, I, I started as an, as an environmental science major in college when I moved out to Boulder. And at the time, no one really seemed to care about the environment. So I was kind of like, what am I doing? Like, where's this leading? <laughs> and so I changed major as I was so interested in athletics and sport and movement and anatomy and physiology. It made a lot of sense for me to go down more of like a, a pre-med road. And that really suited me. And as I started to look people that were doing manual therapies, it really drew me in this idea that, um, you know, by working with your hand, you pull. And it just seemed like a very natural fit. And so as I gained more experience in doing that, I realized that was, that was what I wanted to do um, with, my, with my career. Also, to really connect with people um, and and build a, build relationships with people, which also felt important as part of that process. Yeah. So it was this this love and enjoyment for working with your hands, touching people in an empathetic, healing fashion that kind of drew you to physical therapy. Yeah, and the relate and the relationship building part, like really getting to know people, was really important to me, which is why I you know, stood out to me because it offered sort of this model where I had more time to spend with people to really get to know them well. I see. Okay. Okay. And how, 
this is a loaded question and I'm not sure how to make it more specific, but how has your career as a physical therapist, how has it evolved? How did it start out and why did you always, did you always start out doing mind body medicine? And if not, how did you start to get into that? Yeah, that's a cool question. I, um, I had a back injury when I was in college before I got to physical therapy school. Um, it was pretty intense. I was skiing moguls and I felt something happen in my back and being 18, I was like, Oh, whatever. It's probably fine. And I kept skiing and for about a week and severe pain. Um, fast forward three or four years, I was mostly pain-free and then my pain came back. So now I'm 22, 23. It's like after college, still not a physical therapist yet. I'm like, um, an assistant trying to decide what I want to do, um, professionally and the pain came back. And that experience for me was really formative because I had a herniated disc in my low back at L5 S1. It was pretty significant. The physiatrist wanted, uh, wanted to do surgery. They thought surgery was appropriate. They weren't really doing injections at that time. And so I got a second opinion and this other doctor happened to work with a lot of motor vehicle accident, um, more chronic pain people. Um, although he, he wasn't a surgeon. And so he said, listen, you're young, you're healthy. You're already starting to feel better. And why don't you just give it some time and see what happens? And so that's what I did. And, you know, in retrospect, that was very progressive of him to go out on a limb right and and encourage me to mm -hmm. to 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 give it some time so i went through this process of rehabilitating myself with these mentors that turned out to be some of my my favorite manual therapy mentors before i knew anything about anything right mm -hmm. and it worked for me it was brilliant and during that time i read john sarno's book healing back pain and that was also very powerful for me and very formative for me and um I think I carried that, that sort of hopeful narrative into my training and then into my clinical practice. Not in, a, not in the way that, that, that the three of us sort of do in our practices right now, but there was this more like, um, I guess, respect around how fear and pain are connected because I'd had that experience. And I felt empowered by the people around me that I was going to get better and I could do things to, to support my healing and I was going to be okay. And I could get back to sports. I didn't have people telling me otherwise. Right. And so I shared that with my patients early in my career, even though I was a very strict biomedically trained manual therapist. Um, I realized later, I realized now that that orientation was really important in my practice. Yeah. So you mentioned you got injured skiing moguls and you had a herniated disc at L5-S1. Was that, was that pinching the nerve at all? Or was that just a herniated disc? Oh yeah. I, I had, um, I had a big herniated disc at L5-S1, basically obliterating the nerve root mm -hmm. on the right side. I had mm -hmm. loss of reflex. I had some atrophy in my glute. I had very consistent structural symptoms in my lower leg and foot. 
every time I bent forward, I'd have pain shooting down my leg. I mean, I, I was like the perfect candidate for surgery in a lot yeah. of ways. Um, and you'd had it for a number of months or? Yeah. Well, when it came back, you know, it probably took six months for it to fully resolve. Okay. And it, and it did. And, you know, I always wondered because we didn't have the MRI research that we have now. I always wondered, like, where did the disc yeah. go? Like, what happened to it? <laughs> Yeah. And I didn't really want to know, but no one did a follow-up MRI. So mm -hmm. I was basically pain-free. I've been pain-free ever since. Weird, right? Yeah. So six months, did you actually go to physical therapy during that six-month rehab period? Yeah. I worked with these mentors at um, a clinic here in Boulder that I ended up working at as a, as a physio later. And okay. these, these are some of my most important mentors because they were so forward thinking. Yeah. Yeah. They were so, they were so good at what they did. And so I felt really fortunate to have them, you know, in my corner. Um, and yeah, that, that process was all about, you know, body work and manipulation and strain counter strain and muscle energy technique and, and, there was no dry needling at the time, but there was yeah. corrective exercise and core stability. And, you know, I, I, I stayed active through that whole period. I'd swim, yeah. I'd run in the pool. I'd sit on my bike straight up without leaning forward. Cause that would trigger my symptoms. And I just had always had this, this belief that I was going to be fine. Hmm. Is that partly because of that? PM&R doctor said, Hey, Charlie, you know, let's just give it some time and see what happens. I think you're going to be okay. For sure. I think that was a big part of it. Yes, for sure. Hmm. And, and so you looking back on this, this event, what are some of those pieces besides the physician saying, Hey, Charlie, I think you're going to be okay. Was it, I mean, do you also think the physical therapy really helped you staying active? Yeah, there's no doubt I had fear. I mean, you know, it's pretty scary and sure. being in that much pain and, and not knowing as a young person yeah, how this is going to affect your future. But I really was, I don't know, I guess reassured by the idea that I had all these people around me that were, that were so positive and, and, and they, they offered me things that made me feel safe. So like in retrospect, even though we know that, um, you know, these specific core exercises or these specific manual therapy techniques maybe aren't a long-term solution. They gave me a sense of security and control and they helped me understand um, how I, how I was going to be able to get well. And I think, I think that was really powerful, powerful for me. Sure. Dr. Guasco, I feel like I'm hogging all the questions here. Do you have any or anything that you oh, want to mention or? Comment. Charlie, yeah, Charlie, on that last point, can you talk a little bit more about that part of it? Because um, I think that's a really helpful bridge for interested in doing uh, the mind-body uh, aspects of, of pain treatment and using their hands and developing an exercise plan for patients and that. So it sounds like you're saying it was a very powerful thing for you to have that aspect of, of control and direction early on, and that creates a lot of safety, right? Um, so yeah, can you for, talk a little bit more about that experience? Sure. Yeah, I think we all know, right, that belief is such an important ingredient when it comes to healing. And I always try to keep that in mind because as much as I have this idea of how things need to look for someone to overcome chronic pain and to cure their, their symptoms, um, if they don't believe it, it's not going to go that well. 
So I need to always stay very flexible with people. And I, I said, I spent the first right 10 plus years of my career, um, feeling really confident in helping people understand why they were in pain from a very biomedical manual therapy, biomechanical approach. And that worked really well because I, I gave people confidence. I helped them understand what was going on. I gave them the sense that I, I, I could help them overcome this and, and it worked even, even without the, the, the talk about the psychosocial factors. Um, and so I, I really appreciate how powerful the body work and the movement practices can be, even if you don't dig back into trauma and life stress and all these other things. So, so Charlie, why? Okay. So I, I guess my, my, my follow-up question to that is if the biomechanical work and the manual therapy worked, why did you go into the, why have you evolved into more of the mind body work? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think I, you know, I think I, through my career going back to the alchemist, right? Like things sort of find me. Like, I, I feel like I don't have to hunt for things. They just, the, the universe just presents them. And this I think was one of those things where when you work in clinical practice long enough, you gain a sensitivity to like what you're good at, what's effective and where maybe there are some holes or some shortcomings. And I had this moment where I felt like, you know, I, 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 was, work, I was really effective with some people, but I was also realizing that a lot of that was because of my therapeutic alliance skills. Like I, I, I would consider myself a good manual therapist. I wouldn't say I'm the best manual therapist in the entire world. I haven't given my life to it the way some people do. Um, I haven't doubled down on it in that way. And I, so I realized that my relationship with my clients was really therapeutic. And it, it reminded me of my experience with my own back pain and reminded me of the work of John Sarno. And so I said, you know, I feel like I'm at a point where I'm doing all these other things really well. I feel like I have mastery around these. I have my 10,000 hours or whatever. Like what's next? What's the next logical step for me? And so when I started digging in, I connected with Dr. Schubiner um, through, I don't know, various channels. And um, it just so happened that he was, you know, teaching. He had sort of taken Dr. Sarno's work and and expanded on it and made it more clinically available or clinically effective. Maybe is the right word. Um, and so and so that was for me was like, what's next, right? Like I, I manipulate, I needle, I fascial release, I analyze biomechanics, I do medical bike fitting, I analyze gait, I make orthotics, um, I do corrective exercise, I've ran my business in the CrossFit gym. So now I'm doing, you know, real functional movements to bridge that gap between where PT ends and where return to sport starts. And so for me, I felt like I, I had that part sort of wired, but I was still missing something. I see. Did you ever come across patients that would come into your your clinic and i mean you would work on all the biomechanic things and strengthen them and stretch them and 
analyze their gait cycle and everything looks great, but they, they come back to you and they say, Charlie, I still am having a lot of pain. Did you ever have moments where like you thought, well, this patient's just not getting better and I don't see anything biomechanically that's wrong. There's gotta be something else. I feel like that's, (laughs) that was kind of my, my experience in my first year of residency. I was like, gosh, these patients keep coming back again and again. And I don't find a whole lot to treat. There's gotta be something else. And that's where I found just a little bit of light and help through this mind body work. Yeah. I think, I think you're probably more savvy than I, than I was at the time. I, I, I think, I think early in my career, I would have said that, you know, if I'm not able to help somebody with this biomechanical model, this biomedical model, there's something else going on, right? Like they need surgery or they need, they need to do something else. Um, if I can't help them, um, because I, I felt like I got really good at making up stories about my clinical findings that allowed me to explain just about anything in a way that made people feel like, okay, that makes sense. Do you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think I was missing, I think for a while I was missing what I now realize is sort of a lot of these things are just normative findings. Like a lot of these biomechanical patterns that people start to pathologize and medicalize are really just normal human variations in human biomechanics. And, and seeing it that way now, I really appreciate that, that I have this new lens, right? Like, yeah, a lot of these people are, 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 um, are totally okay. Their body is totally fine. And it's not a body problem at all. But for a long time, I convinced myself, I would have, my training was such that I, I could make up a story about just about anything to explain why the person was in pain based on the body. Mm-hmm. Dr. Guasco, I'm sure you've got some burning questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this, this is what opens to a lot of the things that you and I have talked about, um, you know, on this rotation, really bridging paradigms, right? Because Charlie, you're right. You go through as well. It's, it, you could really make a, a, a narrative and a story about and our hands are, I mean, after you do this for a while, I mean, you can feel all kinds of stuff. Yeah. What is, what is normal? At, at what point is it, is it normal? And, and I think like you, you're a product of your training. And so when you, when you're trained to see these things as, uh, you know, struck and can explain somebody's condition, then that's how you'll approach it. And start to see that. It just feels, I don't know, maybe there's an energy in there in the room or something like that, but it feels like there's something else. Oh, it's only when you, when you can kind of open yourself up to that a bit that you can, that, and, and, and then obviously getting some experience with like seeing patients in real, these exercises, these mind-body techniques and things, that things change in real time. Um, Um, it's, it's fascinating but but i just i, I uh feel free to in terms of this you know explaining things in that way and um and it's and i'm curious about how you how you 
have made it so such it's normative and, and i mean i've gotten a little bit better with that over time but i, I dr green i'm he's like well how do you know it's normal like where, where, where do you where do you go with that <laughs> yeah you get this you get you know we almost take pride in it right like i can feel every segment i can feel the individual facets <laughs> right. and how much movement they have and i can feel the difference in the size of your multifidus when i ask you to fire it right like we, <laughs> we we take pride in the fact that we can feel like a penny through a mattress <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yes <laughs> and i think there's a lot of there's a lot you can see why there's an attachment right to that skill because it's kind of cool it's like a magic trick um and so for me letting go of that was was a lot to ask you know, um, but but I realize now, like, what a gift to and, and what a relief almost to let some of that go. Um, and maybe we can come back to that at some point. But, um, you know, I, I think I think as I look back, like there's a gift to me having gone through that and 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 having come back from that because because we live in this world we live in where things are so biomechanically, you know, people are so biomechanically oriented and the belief system is so biomechanically biased. I feel like if I hadn't had that experience, I wouldn't be able to talk to people about it in as strong and confident a way as I do. Um, because I've been there, you know? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm struggling with this, you know, right now in my residency education, because our, our education in our residency here at Michigan State, and I'm not uh, trying to criticize the program, but it's, it's very biomechanically driven. And when I shared with some of the physicians, um, this mind body approach, one of them said, well, how do you know that there's not that the fascia, which is enveloping all of our muscles and makes up our tendon sheaths and our tendons, which has nociceptive receptors. And how do you know that that's not causing pain? And I was like, uh, I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the lycra body suit, as I like to call it, yeah, that, that envelops everything. Yeah, it's a it's a big question, right? Right. Um, and and honestly, like sometimes you don't know until later. Sometimes you don't know until people have failed a bunch of treatments and they've tried myofascial release and they've tried acupuncture and they've tried all these things. And so I like to say, like failed treatments are one of the best diagnostic tools hmm. when you're talking about primary pain. If, I don't know. I don't know if there's a if there's a label you all use. I've sort of settled on primary pain because it's like the internationally recognized diagnostic code, right? For what otherwise has been called TMS or mind body syndrome or neuroplastic pain, um, pr primary symptoms are symptoms that are driven primarily by the nervous system, brain and nervous system, in the absence of a structural problem. So for me, failed treatments are, are something I always add to the evidence list of how do we know it's not your fascia? Well, you treated your fascia. You had an injection. You had surgery. 
you saw the best bike fitter in the world. You had your gait analyzed, right? You've done, you've done all these things and they haven't worked. What does that tell us, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so one of one of my mentors would say, like someone presents with a sacral torsion. We call it a backwards torsion. It's it's stuck between the anominance in the pelvis. And my favorite thing to manipulate in the whole entire world. Yes, go go on. <laughs> yeah. So here at Michigan State, we're huge on well, you you gotta sit up. You gotta sit upright. You gotta correct your posture because if you're slouching and you're turning off your transversus abdominis and slouching, that sacral torsion is gonna happen every single time and that's what's causing your back pain mm. i'm like oh, okay <laughs> yeah i mean that's the yeah. that's how we were all trained right and and do i still manipulate that that pattern yeah. sure um do i do i talk about it like it's the problem not usually i mean to come back to your question about how do you know if these things are are causing the symptoms or not um, we can, we can dive into that, what I call the evidence list, if you want. Sure. Um, yeah. I'm sure Dr. Guasco, you've worked with this a lot, but, um, there are times when there are times when I will still intervene with body work and I'll talk about those things as adaptive change or deconditioning patterns, or basically these are the result of pain, not the cause. So these are things that have happened because you've been moving differently, right? You've, you've been avoiding things. So let's get you moving again. Like let's get that sacrum moving again. And then let's reinforce that through healthy movement. Um, I don't go down the posture road because we know the evidence around posture is really poor as a correlative pain. Um, I don't go down the transverse abdominis multifidus road um, as a, as something that I think is going to fix pain because that's not how it works. It's not how it's played out in the evidence. There's not great evidence for that. Um, that said, if I find that, you know, if someone's an athlete and they're going to be demanding, you know, something, some performance out of their trunk, then, then maybe we talk about that, right? If there's some evidence that multifidus, and their back is a little sluggish on one side or the other. Like, let's get that firing. Let's check that box, right? Like, if we haven't checked the box, I think it can be really important for people that you check that box based on your training, based on what you know could be a physical variable. I still wouldn't talk to a patient as though that was the cause of their pain because we know that the brain is in charge of pain 100% of the time. Not mm -hmm. the multifidus. The multifidus is just an expression of the brain being in a state of danger alarm and it trying to protect us. That's how I think of it. How, how, would, how would a weak multifidus, how, oh, you're saying that that is causing this pain, like alerting the brain to maybe something more deep yeah, to protect so like, us? So like after a surgery, let's say, right? Let's say a knee surgery, an ACL surgery, you see atrophy of the quad. Um, you see the medial quad sort of go inhibited, 
This is the brain protecting that person from doing too much with that knee as it's healing. The brain can do the same thing, even in the absence of an injury, it can create an assortment of physical changes, either to try to protect the person or because the person's been moving differently or avoiding things or not, they haven't been in their body. And so there's gonna be this natural cascade of physical objective findings that show up. The way I decide it clinically is, do these things add up to a pattern that makes sense to me that I can treat? Or is it sort of a random assortment of things that doesn't really make sense and doesn't really seem significant? Again, based on my experience, um, does it add up? And oftentimes it doesn't add up. You're saying, does it add up to what this person is complaining about? Right. Does it add up? And Um, you're saying you're doing that based off of your years of clinical experience. Yeah. And based on my experience and research. Yeah, for sure. And I I think sometimes I downplay that. Um, I think the experience is important, but we've all been trained to do a good physical. And so when you're going through that exam, um, you know, are those clinical findings adding up to a pattern that, that, that maybe demands a physical intervention? And if it does, then the cool thing is we're trained to do that, right? We can, we can, we can hold both of these things with equal regard and, and maybe we do both. And it doesn't have to be like a binary where we're, mm-hmm. we're saying you either have a structural problem or you have this mm-hmm. other primary pain mm-hmm. condition where we need to treat them totally differently. We can synthesize these two things. I, I think. Yeah. Dr. Bosso, did you want to add anything or. Yeah. I, I want to. Uh, more about uh, Charlie, when, you, when you have that sort of dual focus with somebody, which can happen quite a bit. How it, it sounds like the way you can correct me if I'm wrong, the way you count. Have these adaptive changes. They have these, whether it be a deconditioning pattern from a surgery or. And you find these things, and we're going to treat that. But that those are to uh, this uh, mind-body sort of process, and by treating, you can get a better result. I I, I think so. I mean, you know, you, there's something re- there's something reassuring about knowing that all all of our physical sensations are a product of our brain. And the stuff we see in the body is, is, is not with the pain, right? Even if the person has had surgery, even if the person has had an injury, um, the brain is still in charge. So my, my buddy who just fell off the second flat iron climbing broke, you know, 16 ribs and his collarbone and his wrist and his femur. And he was in a, you know, he was unconscious for a while as he's recovering. He's noticing that like, his brain can only kind of deal with one pain at a time. So his, his femur is bothering him a lot, but he doesn't really feel his ribs at all. Um, so he has this real structural mm-hmm. problem, but you can still see that his brain is selectively choosing what to attend uh, to what to attend to. Um, so, so I think there's something reassuring about that, about helping people understand that it's always a mind body phenomenon. There are some people for whom the body's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with the body as we know. Right. And then we can really focus on the psychosocial factors, but 
for a lot of the athletes that I treat, like they, they appreciate that I'm giving some to the body. And so the way I conceptualize this is I'm intervening in your body, not to fix things. It's not my job to fix anything because you're not broken. Um, I'm having a conversation with your brain. I'm giving input to your fascia, to your muscles, to your joints in order to create change in your brain's perception of safety versus danger. And if I can do that in a way that helps reduce the person's fear, especially in the short term, it can make a really big difference and then free them up to be able to work on these psychosocial factors that we know are usually the primary drivers of symptoms, right? Mm, yeah, interesting. Did you, any follow up there, Dr. Guasco? And part of the, the process will be gathering evidence about the how it presents in their life, right? Yeah, for sure. I think it it might be cool to talk about the um, the evidence list a little bit. Yeah, sure. Let's dive into know. that. Yeah, I think you know there there's a short list of things that in the subjective history you learn from a client. Um, the first one is was there a mechanism was there a mechanism of injury? Um, like, did the person have a, an injury where something happened like a car accident or a fall or they sprained their ankle or, you know, something obvious happened? For most of my clients, even here in Boulder, Colorado, where I, I see a very active population, pain kind of starts out of nowhere. And that tells you something right away. Mm. Um, the second question is, how long has it been going on? We know from the science that if it's been going on longer than three months, or let's be generous and say six months, that whatever happened, if anything, it's probably healed. Like the tissue's probably healed at that point. Um, are they dealing with some adaptive change and some deconditioning? Maybe. And we can talk about those things if we need to, because they haven't been running, they haven't been in the gym, they haven't been playing tennis, you know, whatever the thing is. We can work on those things. Um, the next question is, how much fear do they have around the pain? How many things have they tried and failed? What have they heard from other clinicians? Have they had an MRI? And we know the people that have had MRIs um, early in the process tend to have worse outcomes because it creates more fear, right? We have the research on that. Um, so if people are catastrophizing and they have a lot of fear avoidance, that's important. The next question I usually ask to help build this evidence list is, was there something stressful going on in your life when the pain started? And that question kind of blows people's minds, especially when they've seen, you know, 12 different clinicians and no one's been able to support them or help them. And you ask them that question, they sit back in their chair and they think about it and they're like, oh my gosh, I never would have thought of that. That yes, you know, two years ago, I was at a really hard place in my life and I was changing jobs and I'd ended a relationship and, you know, so that question can be really powerful. If there's not a clear injury, then I feel like it's really important to make meaning and to give context to why the pain might have started at that time in the person's life. So, Charlie, something that... I find myself doing because I'm really not sure what's causing someone's pain. I'll use the, the diagnosis of overuse injury. So in your athletic population, do you think that could be 
one of the mechanistic causes of pain in these athletes that are going out and being very demanding on their body physically? Um, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I, I almost want to say almost never because, you know, I want to be a little extreme for your audience. <laughs> <laughs> I want to kind of make a point. <laughs> I mean, listen, the, the capacity of the human body, the athletes I see is, is crazy. It's beyond anything you would ever imagine. I mean, if you look at the things that are happening in the world of sports, it just blows you away. The amount of volume people are doing, the distances they're running, the speeds, the skill level, it's crazy. And I think we're too quick to like default to this idea that you're, that, oh, you're doing too much. There's a, uh, there's a, um, the, the coach at Oregon state, the cross country running coach, they would MRI scan their runners pretty regularly. And, and um, they found that like a pretty high prevalence of them had stress fractures in their, in their lower legs, but had no pain, which I thought was really interesting. Like they were, they were seeing the data on, on, on stress reaction injuries, but it, it wasn't always painful. It was just a normal, a normal adaptation to the volume they were doing, like a, like a, a change in the bone. Mm -hmm. um, and I think if you, if you sort, of, sort of really look at an athlete population and you start to really investigate and collect evidence on why they're in pain, nine out of 10 times it has nothing to do with overuse or overtraining. Um, that's not to invalidate the idea of what I call a total stress score. Have you heard that term before? I, I have not. So the, so the total stress score yeah. in terms of, in terms of coaching is like, how much volume is this athlete doing? What's their recovery? Like what's their sleep? Like, how are they eating? I like to take it a step further and say, what are the psychosocial stresses in their life? And let's make a pie chart out of that and say, you know, what, why is this person's nervous system in a state of danger alarm? And if the first thing we do is blame their sport, we might be missing a lot of really important opportunities that allow them to continue towards their goals without having to stop, which as you, as you both probably know, creates a lot of fear, pokes at identity, affects their social circle, their social community, takes away one of their most important coping strategies, <laughs> affects their career potentially. And so, you know, it, what if we start looking at some of these other variables around the stress in these athletes' lives and start to get on top of those instead of defaulting to, well, it must just be too much training. It must just be running too much or, or whatever. Um, there is a time, there is a time in the short term to rest and to give things a break and to let them cool off. I think that's sometimes warranted. So Charlie, what you're saying is that stress can stress more so than underlying structural pathology overload. Is, yeah. Is most often the, the cause of someone, these pain, this pain interpretation in, in the brain. Yes. I like, to, I like to divide this, right? I, when I talk to patients sometimes, I'll talk about nociception, right? Because nociception is the information that's coming from the tissues mm -hmm. up to the brain and the brain's deciding like, what do I do with this information? Is it, 
Is it, is it enough that I should be worried about that person's disc or their Achilles tendon or their, or their shoulder or their labrum? Um, but the problem is the brain is not just weighing that, it's weighing all these other things. And so there's a time when the stress in a person's life or the change that they're dealing with or whatever's going on for them psychologically is so big that it doesn't really take that much nociception to trigger the danger alarm. And there's no better way to get an athlete's attention that something's not okay in their life than pain. It's the most effective way to communicate with an athlete. And so if pain is, a, is your brain kind of checking in with you, as Dr. Schubiner likes to say, to make sure that you're okay. I like it because it's like a compassionate view of the nervous system. Like, hey man, I'm just checking in with you. <laughs> seems like you're not, seems like you're struggling. If the first right. thing we do is assume that the nociceptive information is the problem, then we potentially create a lot more fear for that athlete or that person. I mean, really it's just people, right? Because there's such a strong bias towards your body's not okay. You're getting old, you're wearing out, you have arthritis. So take athlete out of it. but we, we miss this opportunity to look at these other players that are affecting the nervous system that I think give us the opportunity to really make an impact way sooner, intervene more quickly and really be preventive. Yeah. So stress and fear, there seems to be a relation there. Like stress often can lead to fear often can induce fear, I think. Um, how do you, how, how do you speak to your patients and in a way that doesn't induce, doesn't provoke fear about, like, how do you, how do you change that mentality? Because the athlete or the person walking through Merrill performance thinks probably there's something structurally wrong with them. How do you kind of change the paradigm to if after doing your physical exam and looked at all the imaging and you don't see anything structurally that could be causing this, how do you make that paradigm shift to, well, let's look at the stressors. Let's look at some of the fear that you may have in your life. Yeah. I think as I hear you ask that question and I reflect on that, I think I start from a place of there's probably not something wrong until I see evidence that there is something wrong. And that does happen, mm. right? There are, there are people that come in and I, and I, I get to, I get to invalidate that hypothesis, but I think more and more because of my experience with, with people, I, I, I feel like I owe it to them and to myself to start from a place of there's probably nothing seriously wrong with you. This is not an emergency. There's nothing dangerous happening. There's nothing urgent, right? We don't need to intervene. And maybe we can even like, even if we don't know, maybe we can just like wait a little bit and just see what happens. Hmm. Um, see. Pretty quickly during the exam, you, you start collecting evidence that starts to tip you in one direction or another. And there are certainly people that I send to the orthopedist or send back to their doctor or to a cardiologist because I don't know because I don't have the training to be totally confident. So I rely on my physician partners to support me there. Um, and so, yeah, I guess, I guess that was what came up for me when you were asking that question. Um, I see. Is, is that I, I, I start with this more like, 
optimistic, hopeful mindset because people come in so scared and they come in having heard. I just saw this client today that like her whole story was so poignant. Like it revolved around all the stuff that she'd heard from, from medical providers that just almost left her traumatized. It was so terrible. Her story was so sad to me. And she was on one hand really relieved to hear that maybe those things weren't true, but still really like wrestling and struggling with that. It's brutal. Yeah. Dr. Guasco, did you want to add anything or ask anything? No, you can't. You... Okay. Um, so with that, Charlie, like, do you find that, I mean, patients are probably walking through your door thinking something's wrong with their body. Like, isn't that quite a paradigm shift for them to think, well, I'm, my body's okay. I'm safe. I'm healthy. My body can repair itself. Like that's a huge paradigm shift. Yeah. Do you, do you find much resistance? Like people are like, Oh man, he's not listening to me. Like he doesn't know what's going on with my body. There's something, there's something wrong. Going on. Yeah. Or do our patients usually pretty, pretty receptive. I mean, I think early on before people like people come to see me now because they kind of know what I do or they've heard from their friends that they should come see me. So um, I think the longer you do the work, the more people know what they're signing up for, but certainly there are people that come in expecting that. And the majority of people are, you know, they're tears. Like there's real relief in hearing that it's one of my favorite parts of the process is, you know, I, I tell my wife, like, my job is to basically tell people they're okay. Like, what a gift that is, you know? Sure. Absolutely. Like, like when you make a paradigm shift like this, like, you realize what a, what a beautiful gift it is to give to someone to tell them they're okay. And then, and then to see them actually be okay and to get well after years of, of struggling, um, there's nothing more rewarding than that, I would say. Yeah. Um, that, but I think this leads to a conversation about attachment um, because there's, there's naturally and normally can be a lot of attachment to physical symptoms. Um, and I like to really address that really directly because it's so normal, even though for some people it's kind of uncomfortable Um I guess I should take a step back. Like the art of talking to someone about and explaining to someone this paradigm shift is not easy. It it's laden with <laughs> it's laden with with uh, danger. <laughs> That's a good yeah, you, you run the risk of invalidating people, <laughs> minimizing their experience. You know, um, and I think every clinician has to to decide like what's their, what's their strategy. Some people are really good at like using motivational interviewing and helping people arrive there on their own and like taking the slow road so that people sort of start to question their own story. Um, I tend to be more direct because I like to just be able to cut through the bullshit for lack of a better term. Cause mm -hmm. I want, cause I want people to get better. I'm not saying it's always the most effective, but 
there's something, I mean, you both know Dr. Schubiner. Um, there's something about belligerent confidence that goes a long way at cutting through people's cognitive dissonance, right? When I come in and I'm the first person that's told them that their MRI scan is not a problem and I do it in a really confident way, that's kind of important. If I'm kind of wishy-washy, they're not going to believe it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so I just wanted to like, you know, that this, this pathway through psychoeducation is not always easy and it's different for everybody. It's like a work of improv. <laughs> it's kind of how I think of it. <laughs> it's like you can't rely on a standard script or else you're going to put your mouth. <laughs> Gosh, I feel so. I just feel like I'm that person right now because of my education and because of my, I mean, lack of clinical experience. Um, I really struggle with that, that aspect of saying, hey, you're, you're okay. You're safe. There's nothing wrong with you. Mm. And to, and I guess, you know, I'm doing my ortho spine rotation and we're seeing bulging discs all the time. And we're talking about degenerative disc disease and arthritis. And that's the cause of your pain. And I'm just being fed this all the time. And, and I'm not, and it seems to me that definitely at times it seems to be that that does cause pain right? It can have a structural cause. But a lot of the patients that we see in our clinic have gone through the whole gamut of the orthopedic surgeon, the neurosurgeon, PM&R, the pain clinic, and we're kind of end of the road, you know? And gosh, it's so hard for me right now to say, hey, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. Confidently, confidently, like you're talking about, that so what, what, what advice would you, would you have for me, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. I think that comes with time. I think it comes with experience and seeing, you know, a lot of cases where things play out in the, in the way that, that reinforces this, these ideas that we're talking about. I think that yeah. that will give you a lot of confidence over the course of time. I do encourage the clinicians that I train to sort of create their own flow around this and experiment. I mean, I mess up all the time. Are you kidding? This is, this is why we call it clinical practice because you're, you're, you're going to learn from your mistakes. And I think as clinicians, we, we need to be able to make mistakes in order to help people better. And if we're trying, if we're held back because we're trying to be perfect all the time, we're going to be less effective. So mm -hmm. I I've learned so much more from my mistakes than I have from my successes <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so I think there's something important about trusting that this is the truth. And all we're doing with people is sharing with them the truth um, against a medical system, which is otherwise, you know, maybe not as up to date as we'd like it to be. And so I don't, I don't feel bad about that. And if I turn someone off because I told them the truth, then I don't know. I, I guess I, I need to let that go. Yeah. Um, but there's sensitivity for sure. And I think it's, it begs a certain amount of um, caution and, and 
it, it's important to take down the urgency. I talk a lot with clinicians about planting seeds mm-hmm. and, and trusting that those will grow in time and not like going for gold all at once. Yeah. You have to be able to read people and decide like, is this person coming in fully open to what I'm sharing with them or are they going to be a little more resistant? And we didn't, we didn't come back to this topic of, of, of resistance and cognitive dissonance because it's so common. Like, you know, as clinicians were like, but I'm telling you, you're okay. This is like the best news ever. (laughs) Why don't you believe me? (laughs) Why are you doubting me? Come on. <laughs> right. And do and you want to be back to what you're talking about? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it brings us back to that idea of attachment, right? I mean, these people, a lot of the people that we see in our clinic are chronic pain patients. It's like all they've known for the past decade. And it's just part of who they are. It, it, it's such a such a challenge to work through that attachment and i guess yeah it's kind of a slow process planting seeds and waiting for them to make that paradigm shift and and truly believe that their body is healthy and and you you talk charlie about and dr schubner does this too after finishing the physical exam and reviewing you know, the whole book of their medical history for the patient and realizing, hey, this, this doesn't seem to be a structural problem. He'll have them do, at least when I was working with him in the afternoon, say out loud in an affirmative way, what's wrong with you? And they say nothing. And then he's like, well, say it louder. And they're like nothing. <laughs> and then they shout at nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's powerful. And people get really emotional when when you ask them to say it, it's very different. I, I say this a lot. Like, it doesn't matter what I believe as a clinician. What matters is what you believe right? as a client or patient. So there's something powerful about them saying it. Now, I will say that there are, there are a lot of people that are in the gray, right? There are a lot of people that have real structural problems and they've had a fusion or they've had a brain injury or they've had some type of physical trauma or they have some type of real disease process going on, even to the level of cancer, where you can't tell them that they're totally safe. Mm-hmm. But yet you can still have the conversation about being able to down-modulate or down-regulate the symptoms. And you may not know until later that the symptoms will completely go away. And maybe it wasn't that thing that they thought it was all along. And so I, I spend a lot of time in the gray with people not being able to tell them with 100% confidence that they're okay. Because maybe they're three months in to recovery from a, from a, a traumatic injury. And they're, they're four months in to an ACL reconstruction. And on paper, they're, they're healed, right? Like there's still some remodeling to happen, but they're mostly through the healing process. Mm-hmm. And so you're sort of navigating the both and and you're making, you're holding both again with equal regard, but you're giving them permission to address this as a biopsychosocial condition. It's always all three, always. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. But when, when Dr. Schubiner was having the patients say out loud, 
there's nothing wrong with me. It was so interesting to see how initially they were kind of scared and hesitant. And they're like, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure. And then a few patients, you almost saw after each time that they said, yeah, maybe there is nothing wrong with me the second time that they said it. And then the third time they're like, whoa, like, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I, I think I actually believe this. And it was just kind of really, it was really interesting to see that progression in such a short period of time. It's pretty amazing. You, you, the, the two of you may not know this about me, but because I work with a lot of people in acute pain, like people that come in the day their pain started, there are a lot of um, cases where I'm able to tell them that on the first day. Mm-hmm. that their back is in full on spasm, but nothing happened to their body. And there was a significant life stressor that paralleled the onset yesterday. Right. And so at the end of that session, I can acknowledge that their backs in spasm and that they're guarding because their nervous system is freaking out. And I've literally had people that I've had to help into my office because they could hardly walk. And they walk out like nothing ever happened. And what a gift to be able to interrupt this chronic pain process so early. Like we don't have science yet that shows what's happening in the brain when someone shows up with back pain that's triggered by an argument with their their wife or husband. Like does that brain light up different from someone that touched a hot stove? My guess is it does but we don't know that yet. And the functional MRI data isn't super neat and tidy around this. I've talked to a number of clinician, uh, a number of researchers about this. Um, Yoni Ashar, who ran the CU low back pain study, um, and I have talked about functional MRI scans about how it's not quite as, as clean as we'd like it to be. And I'm really curious about this because I see so many people that come in with new pain Right? We, we, we like to default to thinking that acute pain, by definition, is an injury. When really all acute means is that it just started. It's new. It's a, it's a time domain, not a mechanism. So I'm, I live more in the preventive side where I'm like, I want to prevent you from tipping over into chronicity. I don't want to get you five years from now when you've seen a bunch of people in PM&R and had injections and surgery. Like, I don't want to wait to that point. I want to interrupt this sooner. And, and how do patients respond to that for you? I think they love it. I mean, I think mostly when you can present them the evidence, um, I think they're super relieved there, there's way less attachment when you catch this stuff early. I think it's the best opportunity to interrupt this cycle of it, mm. of it turning chronic. Um, and as you said, like people have been living this way for a long time. They've, they've created their life around this reality. And so of course they're attached to it because it's all they know. Like if you take that away, there's just a void. It's terrifying. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I like to normalize that for people that, that um, it's not their fault they're attached to it. They're not choosing to be attached to it. It's just is how it works. Yeah. So Charlie, where does yoga come into this and meditation and mindfulness? Does that enter in, 
anywhere to this mind body work that you do? Sure. Kind of adjunct or. Sure. I think, um, I don't think you can mindfulness your way out of pain. Um, I don't think you can yoga your way out of pain if you're just using that as your primary strategy. Um, I think what's missing, I, I think those modalities can be really effective, but what's missing is this shift in belief from I'm, there's something wrong with me to I'm okay, like I'm not in danger, right? Reducing the fear and giving people permission to start moving again. And we haven't talked about this, right? But, but almost without exception, movement is part of the process of getting better. So, so let's make a plan to get you moving. Is it yoga? Maybe. Is it Pilates? Maybe. Is it going to the gym? Is it dancing? Um, you know, it's different for everybody. And we can, we can talk about movement more if you want to. Yeah. But, but, um, but I think, you know, yoga and meditation, if you send someone into yoga and meditation with the idea that there's something wrong with them, it's going to fail. If you send them into yoga and meditation, same thing, same, same modality, same intervention with the belief that their body is okay and that movement is actually helpful, it's going to help. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's really, so would you say then you really should even start yoga and meditation until you have that conviction that I'm okay and you decrease that fear? Um, People often come in already doing those things, right? (laughs) So so when people come in, the last thing I want to do is say, oh, you shouldn't be doing those things. They're dangerous for your body. Like I'm the last person to create fear about anything. I see. You know, like, what are you doing? You're eating glass and hoping that will fix your pain. Okay. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Someone told you that that would help. Okay. Let's entertain that idea. Um, When it comes to to making a plan around what the person's going to do for their movement practice or to get back in their body again, um, my, my decision tree is, is that thing increasing fear or decreasing fear? Is your yoga instructor telling you scary things about your scoliosis and about you not moving perfectly? Um, Are they reinforcing this idea that you need to be careful and your body's fragile and you're not okay? If so, that's probably not the right class for you. It's probably not the right practice for you. Right. Um, So let's make a plan about what's going to be the thing that's going to break the cycle of fear for you. Now, when you talk about getting back to healthy movement, um, can you talk a little bit more about that, what that means, what that looks like? Yeah, I kind of, we kind of started talking about my movement practice, right? Where as I'm reaching 50, I'm realizing I really appreciate the variety, uh, the diversity of practice and movement. And I think there's a lot of value in what I call a movement vocabulary or people having a lot of experience moving their bodies in different ways. But that said, that's just what I believe. Um, I think belief is really important. And if someone believes that Pilates is, is the right thing for them and they love doing Pilates, then I'm not going to talk them out of that. I, I, I think Pilates is great. 
Um, if someone comes in and, you know, they want to, their goal is to ride horses and they're passionate about horses, I'm not going to tell them that's bad for them or that they need to be careful. Like go ride horses. It's amazing. Beautiful movement practice. So I work with people to visualize what, um, usually visualize what they want to do as a next step in their life. Because a lot of the athletes I work with are in pain because they're still racing their bike or they're still running or they're still rock climbing or crossfitting in this sort of encumbered way. They're doing it because it, it feeds their self-esteem. They're trying to prove something to themselves or prove something to someone else. And it's not, it's not psychologically healthy for them. And so I like to spend the time unpacking that and, and understanding that better. And as we work through some of these psychosocial variables on the other end of it, we start to say, what do you really want to do? Like what lights you up? What, what is the next thing for you in your life? Um, do you still want to race your bike? Cool. That's great. You know, let's, let's do it with a new intention. Let's shift the intention around why you're showing up every weekend to race your bike. Um, and and I, th I think that ends up being a really important part of the process um, to help people be very intentional about choosing their movement practice so that it has more joy and um, wonder and connection with nature you know, all these things that we know are really important for well-being. Um, yeah. The more of that we can add, the better, I think. Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, man, I really, I really admire how you, you don't take this, uh, oh, I'm the clinician. I know what's best for you, you know, follow my orders or else you're not going to get better. You know, I think that's with all the schooling and the training that we go through, I think it's so easy to think that, but I really appreciate how you meet people where they're at and mm. listen to them very attentively and respectfully. I mean, that's, that's super cool. You're a good listener, Dr. Green. I, I didn't intend to sort of, you know, to bring that into the conversation, but that's a really important point. Like, I think one of the things that changed for me as a clinician is I realized I don't have all the, I don't have any of the answers. <laughs> I mean, really the patient has all the answers and what a humbling, what a humbling, but like relieving realization, right? That my job is just to help them discover the truth for themselves. Um, and it's a very collaborative process. It's really fun because it's collaborative. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to know all the things, but as clinicians, we're, I think even physicians are more trained that way. Right. Like to know all the things. Yeah. I almost feel like if I tell a patient, um, you know, I really don't know the answer to this. They'll think less of me like, Oh, this doctor, he's supposed to know everything. You know, he's supposed to have answers for me. And yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a humbling experience to just say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. Let me, let me ask or let me read and get back to you. Yeah, it's funny. I um, think like you do have the answers, right? Like you have all the information that they need. Um, 
but they're the ones that have to choose the solution and what that looks like. You're, you're there to share information with them. Like you're there to psychoeducate and you're there to share the truth based on the science or what the research around MRIs say, or to debunk the myths around leg length or overuse or shoes or bike fit or whatever. You're there to sort of debunk that for them. And then you get to work with them to make a decision about how they want to proceed. Like for some people, they want to stay in this body paradigm, like their body and they want you to teach them how to move and they want you to support them in getting back to doing whatever their physical activity goal is. And they don't want to talk about emotions and they don't want to talk about past trauma and they don't want to talk about their primary relationship. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's okay. That's okay. And maybe you get there later, um, but you're meeting the person where they are. Um, Some people are really into somatic tracking and PRT and it works really well. And for some people it doesn't work at all because they need to make meaning around their symptoms and they need to explore the emotional parts of it. Mm-hmm. And focusing on the physical sensations actually makes it worse. And, and um, so I, I try to be really flexible with people and, and try to adapt my treatment to where they are in the process and a lot of times it's the it's the right thing at the wrong time (laughs) like right i'm intervening i'm I'm trying to bring this strategy in and they're just not ready or we haven't done the we haven't we haven't laid the groundwork for that thing yet and that's okay and again i make mistakes all the time like i fell flat what do you mean exactly by laying the groundwork (laughs) <laughs> like so i was i was on a this morning i was on a call with some clinicians and and um the 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 one pt presented a case and it was a great case it was really interesting and we were talking about these extra these visualization exercises that you might know one of them is the time traveler exercise where you go back to a hard time and you're as the like more wise adult supporting your younger self it's a beautiful practice um, to create a new memory. And the other one is more like an ISTDP practice where you're working with anger and rage and you're giving people permission to go back and act on that anger and rage um, with, through this visualization that, that is you know, relatively safe, right? It doesn't hurt anybody else. But you're, <clears throat> you're creating a new memory. And so he was wondering, like, is this person ready for this yet? Like, I feel like I'm I'd like to try this, but I'm not sure this person's ready. And as he's sharing the case, it was very clear that this client was not bought in to the belief that these hard past experiences were important to her symptoms. And so if you look at it as a clinician, you're like, this person really would benefit from doing this. Like it would be amazing. It would be transformative for them. I really want them to do this but the person isn't there yet, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, yep. the, they don't have enough psychoeducation. They're still holding on to this whole belief. There might need to be more of a focus on somatic tracking or reducing fear or psychoeducation or sharing resources to, to be able to get them to shift that belief before they can even access that emotional stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, 
Yeah, it does. It does make sense. Um, uh, are there times though, where you're like, Hmm, I'm not sure if I've laid the groundwork, you know, but I'm going to give it a try. And then the, the proofs in the pudding there, they're like, um, no, or, Oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. We, Dr. Guasco and I had a few of those experiences together. You, you want to share a story? You get better over time of uh, being. And, and, you know, I mean, in our clinic at MSU, patients are coming in without my sort of approach or paradigm. And so, you know, doing your um, evaluation and, and physical exam, and I'm constantly, you know, assessing in their cognitive state and, and their narrative around their symptoms. And, um, and Dr. Green, you've, you kind of approach patients and, and again, it is, it is difficult, um, with people and it can take some time but um <laughs> he was referring to one patient who i was quite sure uh, that this was more from my body phenomenon a, you know patient who had headaches for since they were like you know seven or something like that it would be a long time and <laughs> and um and, and 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 everything spoke to that um and i brought up about how i you know I, i'm wondering about and, and, and you know, have you thought about how that may play a part in your symptoms or, or stress or something? And she's like, I think you probably should just drop that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we can, we, we, I mean, that, that was, but most of the time, you know, you, you find your, uh, they, they help you find, find your way. <laughs> yeah. Hey, um, I think there's something really brave yeah. though, right? About putting it out there and like, it's like a, just to test, like, let's see how this goes. <laughs> you learn really quickly. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, you yeah, know, like you talking said, about the theme oh, of, go ahead. of, no, go ahead, Dr. Guasco. Oh, okay. So just talking about the theme of meeting a patient where they're at, uh, this just dawned on me the other day. One of my patients his, his wife was or has been just struggling with depression for about a year and a half, doesn't want to leave the house, doesn't want to get out of bed, barely even showers. And, and as a result, her husband has kind of lost his friends because he's just been, you know, been taking care of his wife for the past year and a half. And he'll come to the clinic every so often, you know, every month or so, and, and I'll treat him. And, and now I'm starting to think, wow, you know, I think just from the conversations that we, we have, he's always talking about how he doesn't have friends anymore. And he, you know, he can't hang out with anybody. And I'm wondering, wow, you know, I bet he's coming to this clinic, not really because his neck hurts, but because he wants to visit and have, you know, social time and we get along really well. And um, yeah, anyway. Yeah. That happened a lot during COVID. There was a lot of loneliness. I think there probably still is as people kind of reemerge, but that was definitely a, a phenomenon. And of course, his neck really does hurt, right? They're, they're, all pain is real. There's no yeah. difference between neck pain from a, an acute whiplash, from a car accident, and neck pain because he's lonely, because he's dealing, caretaking his wife. It's the same pain. 
um, objectively, but subjectively, the cause might be very different. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's so true. See, I'm still I'm still working on this paradigm shift in my own head, Charlie. It's so hard. I, I wrestle. <laughs> I have a constant wrestling match going on in my head all day long. It's yeah, yeah. Gosh, that's good to hear. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's interesting because we haven't really talked about manual therapy very much, right? Um, and I love talking about about intervening with the body. And I think I I I really I'm really realizing as I work with with all these amazing clinicians that do mind body work that it's this is really a missing piece for a lot of people, like people want you to consider their body. They want you to touch their body. They want you to address it and reassure them about it and support them in relearning how to use it. Like, I think there's a risk in making this a binary Mm -hmm. and telling people there's nothing wrong. Just like there's a risk in intervening and potentially sending the wrong message to someone. And so, I'm really careful when I explain to people why I'm manipulating, why I'm needling, why I'm intervening with some movement. I'm really careful at helping them know why I'm doing that so that I don't send them the wrong message. Can you give us an example of what you would say, Charlie, with that when you're doing manipulation? Yeah, like let's say let's say I have someone that has a backward backward sacral torsion and they have an upslip in their pelvis and their multifidus is inhibited on that side. Um, let's say this person has normal reflexes and their myotomes, dermatomes are all fine. Maybe they have a little mild neural tension with straight leg raise and slump. Maybe they have some other biomechanical stuff that I'd like to be able to address just because I want, because they're an athlete and I want them to perform well. Um, I come away with this list of things that I want to treat, right? And so I'll, I'll talk to them about, especially if they have some clear psychosocial factors that I'm confident why their pain started and why they're still dealing with it. Like fear, like they moved, like they're struggling in their relationship, like they hate their job or whatever, whatever the thing is, right? If I have those things, I feel even better. Um, and I'll, and I'll, I'll talk about those things first and then I'll come back and say, you know, we know that treating the body is a really good way to give people relief of their symptoms really quickly. If we can send a message to the brain that they're safe. And so by manipulating your SI joint and people love having their upslip manipulated, it pops and they're like, oh, that felt so good. And then I might needle their multifidus. I'm like, all I'm doing here is having a conversation with your brain that you're safe. And as I do it, I'll actually be feeding them information about, I'll be having a conversation with their brain that I want them to be able to have with their own brain. So I'm manipulating their pelvis, I'm manipulating their sacrum. And I'm like, I'm using this brain language like, it's okay. We're just encouraging this joint to move normally again, right? There's no bone out of place. That's not a thing. We're just encouraging your sacrum to move again because you've been avoiding it. And then I'm going to needle this muscle. I'm going to put some stim on there. And we're going to just let your brain know that it's okay. 
It's safe to start getting this muscle working again. It's okay for the muscles to relax. Um, and that, that sort of, it almost takes on like a, like a hypnotic tone mm. to it mm -hmm. yeah. where I'm, I'm, I'm working on their body, but I'm reinforcing my psychoeducation about how this is a nervous system thing. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. Um, I, I, I would love to, uh, or I'm going to start incorporating that into, into my practice for sure. I, I have found myself a few times where I'm like diagnosing the sacrum and I'm like, Hmm. And the page is like, wait, wait, what does that mean? What does that mean? Right. <laughs> you know? Scared. Yeah, exactly. They're yeah. scared. And I realized after having done this mind body rotation, the importance of language and what I am telling the message that I am sending to the patient, just like you said, am I sending a message of safety or giving that message of fear. Yes. Yeah. It's really hard to watch your language with patients, but it really pays off. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well I, think I, I was going to say one more thing on that. Um, like you said, Charlie, I think um, that there's a constant struggle with, with language and, and with um, kind of this dual role that we're playing, but, I feel like we're in, as as practitioners um, with both of these skill sets. Um, I just feel like it's it's such a a privilege and a powerful not not in a narcissistic way, but a powerful place to, for healing. In that we can speak with the body and speak with the brain and kind of bring these things together for people. So it's it's a really really important place to be um, uh, because it, it carries a lot it carries a lot with it. And I, I think you can really use it for good. You could use it for, uh, unfortunately not good too, but, um, but I, I it, it's very much a privilege to do the work. Insight. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Like the good, ver yeah. You, using it for good is really powerful. I just spoke to my alma mater, uh, Regis university where I went to physical therapy school and I was a little, I was a little like self-conscious about it because you know, these, these students are still learning. Um, like you are Dr. Green, right? You're, are you still going through clinical rotations? I, uh, so I'm in my residency training. Okay. Right. Um, so second year of residency training. So graduated medical school. About you still have, you still have all these mentors, right? That you're, that you're, oh, yeah. from. The, Absolutely. Last thing I, the last thing I want to do is take something that I learned 12 years into my career and dump it on them to like mess up their whole experience. And I really- I, Kind of like I just did with Ben. No, so. I mean, it, like, more, it, I, I've done this. I, I've done this with students and they've done amazing. Like when a student's open to it and they run with it, it's incredible. But I'm realizing like there's so much value given the system we live in and being able to talk about the body in a new way that th there's something valuable about all the education that you're going through to learn to be an osteopath, because it gives you this dual role, as you were saying, Dr. Guasco, it gives you this dual role to be able to talk about it in both ways, which I've, I'm hearing from more and more people that that's missing in the mind-body space. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, Dr. Guasco, that was revolutionary. I I am so thankful that I had that rotation. It it has, I mean, ever since we had our talk 
um, about somatic dysfunction and how that's different. Um, how, how pain is so much more than these, what we've been talking about, these biomechanical, what we call somatic dysfunctions. Um, I've been fascinated by this mind body work and I, uh, <laughs> it is, it is revolutionizing my, my thought process and how I treat patients and how I talk to patients. But, um, yeah, I'm very excited about learning more and, um, yeah, I, I see it as very, very enriching. Yeah, I can tell. I can tell you're in like the uncomfortable, like wrestling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Charlie, he is too. I mean, the amount of questions that this guy was asking—it's it's, awesome. it's great. It's, it's lo- so it's awesome. good. Yep. Yeah, you're gonna be so good. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah. I, I just, I, I just had one more thought to share, and now I'm, now I just forgot it because I was so excited about <laughs> you struggling so much. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, struggling, but I hey, I got I got Dr. Guasco there to answer all my questions and <laughs> yeah. help me work he's through all, these he's patients. All I'm here, I'm here for you too. Okay, no, this is this is what I was thinking. Okay, so so the the word somatic kind of trips me up a little bit because, um, you know, as body oriented clinicians, we're starting to look more at the psychosocial factors. And I also see the more psychologically oriented clinicians, psychotherapists and uh, in that world, looking more at the somatic, they're wanting to go more into the body to get people into the body. Oh, it's so true. So I just wanted to, to, to just to talk just really briefly about how physical sensations are interchangeable with emotional sensations. And I've started to talk more about it in this way where I'm not dualizing it. I'm saying, listen, if you're really angry, it's probably going to manifest as back pain. And if you have back pain, there might be emotion. There will be emotion <laughs> tied to that back pain as well. <laughs> and so instead of making it this mind or body, I like to help people understand that they're going to manifest their emotions somatically. And that's normal. And that's just part of being a human being. It's not like you have this weird diagnosis of TMS or neuroplastic pain or primary pain. This is you just being a human being. And I find that the more I can normalize that, the better received it is by people. I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. And by normalizing, you're just saying, hey, you know, that's just part of the, the human experience. Yeah, you, you, yeah, pe- people can get triggered, right? And minimized and validated by the idea that their body's okay, but they, but they have pain because of their emotions. And like, I tell stories about myself all the time. I'm like, listen, this is, this is how we operate. If you go back, if you, if we all really wanted to dig into my herniated disc pain when I was 22 years old, right? That happened when I was 18. It was very clear that was the mechanism mechanism of injury. Why did it come back when I was 22? Potentially after the disc had mostly resolved. Hmm. Right? And if you really dig into what was going on for me in my life at that point, I was just ending college. I was in a relationship. I was trying to decide if this is the person I wanted to marry. I was trying to decide what I wanted to do for a living. This is not a small, inconsequential time in my life. Mm. Um, and my dad had, had back pain. 
And I grew up with a dad that had back pain. So that's, that's in my story too, right? Like, so the more you start digging, the more you see this picture of like, wow, maybe it's not that simple. Um, So I I can, I can look at that in retrospect, really have clarity and understanding around that situation. But in the moment, it's oftentimes more difficult. And I'm sorry we didn't get to talk about pain attachment because it's one of my favorite things to talk about. Maybe that's for another time. Yeah, maybe for another time. Because <laughs> you have been so generous with your time, Charlie. Are Do you have any last comments or any any other ideas that you were really wanting to share outside of the attachment theory? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, thanks for asking. I, um, I really want, I really find it's important to make that point about acute pain because I don't think we're doing that well. And those of us that work in osteopathic medicine and manual therapies, I think have a real opportunity to catch this stuff earlier. And I don't, I don't want to, I don't want people to wait till they're in chronic pain. So I think we owe it to them to be able to look through this lens earlier. Um, the other population that isn't hearing this message is athletes. And this is sort of my, my, I guess my sweet spot that I live in and I really am working hard to be able to start to spread this message to a larger audience. Let's just say athletes being on my list. That acute injury, you're trying to break the cycle that acute injury and acute pain does not need to become chronic pain. Your body is going to heal itself. It doesn't, again, as I said before, acute there's this assumption that acute equals injury and it's mm. wrong. Acute is a time frame. I see. Acute means it's been less than three months. It just started. It doesn't mean that it's an injury. And so we need to be able to catch these psychosocial factors earlier. And this of course leads to treating athletes because athletes are having pain all the time. It's a normal part of being an athlete. And if we assume that it's overuse and we assume that it's overtraining, we're going to miss it. And then these athletes are going to end up with the, with a quiver of pains that they just deal with. I see. Okay. And so this audience is not hearing this message. And I think it's really important. And those of us that deal with the body are going to be seeing these people, you know, osteopaths that are getting trained in manipulative medicine are going to be seeing these people. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we treat a lot of the, the MSU um, collegiate athletes. So Definitely. Yeah. Dr. Guasco, any last comments or questions for Charlie? Anything that you wanted to say? No, Charlie. I, I mean, I, I definitely do. And I put after the podcast, if that's cool um, in the future, but, uh, but no, your insights have been, have been uh, excellent. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. There's so much to talk about. And I feel like I didn't get to hear from the two of you enough. Um, <laughs> there's nothing I'd rather do on a Friday. You would start talk about pain. It's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is this is about you, Charlie, not about us. <laughs> no, but I want to know more about you. I want to hear about you. I want to learn more. Yeah, yeah. We'll uh, we we have to have a round two because I feel like we're just scratching the surface here. I agree. So, but yeah, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and sharing your wealth of clinical experience and kind of being on the, the forefront of 
this paradigm shift into understanding better and promoting this mind-body healing process. So thank you so much. Of course. It's my pleasure. Thank you for creating a, a space to do that. I really appreciate it. And yeah, absolutely. Happy to yep. talk. Hey, hey, Charlie, before I forget, what are, what are some plugs and how can people get in, get in touch with you? Oh, thank you. Um, Merrill Performance or M, the letter M, Performance is my website. Um, most of the content I'm producing right now shows up on Instagram at Charlie Merrill. And the course that Dr. Schubiner and I teach together is called Beyond Pain Education, which is really aimed at taking my colleagues who have done a great job of learning from Laura Mosley, David Butler, Adrian Lowe about how to educate about pain, pain neuroscience, and allowing them to sort of get out of their silo and start to really treat people like human beings, right? Like really addressing these other factors that maybe they would never give themselves permission to do. And I really appreciated that I had that permission from amazing mentors like Dr. Schubiner and Alan Gordon. Um, so that's, that's the sort of clinician course that we teach. And so, yeah, just so stay, stay in, stay in touch, stay tuned in on Instagram for the other stuff I'm working on. I guess that's it. Awesome. Thanks so much again, Charlie. You have a wonderful evening. Yeah. Thanks. You all, all right. too. I can't wait to talk more. Absolutely. Bye now. Have a great weekend. Bye. See ya. After our interview, Charlie sent me more insight on how to distinguish between structural pathology for the cause of pain versus a central nervous system cause for a patient's pain. Here's what he had to say. So just to revisit that uh, question earlier about how do you know, like how do you make this clinical decision about whether you're dealing with a structural problem um, or more of a primary symptom situation where the, the symptoms are being driven by the brain and nervous system, maybe more in the absence of a body problem. Um, symptom behavior is one of the really important variables that we look at to make that decision clinically. Um, when you have a structural problem, the symptoms tend to behave in a very predictable, consistent, reliable, reproducible way. Um, there's a very familiar pattern. Like for instance, if someone has um, you know, a true stress fracture in a bone, let's say, the symptoms will tend to get worse the more they're on it or the more they run. Whereas when you're talking about someone with primary symptoms, uh, the symptom behavior doesn't behave that way. It's much more inconsistent. Um, it, it, it's not as reliable. It's not as reproducible. And um, you start to see that it's behaving kind of weird. So the symptoms might move around. They might change locations. They might show up in multiple areas. They'll tend to get better when we're distracted or when we're immersed in something that we're enjoying. Um, they might get worse when we're focusing on them, talking about them, um, especially worse at times when um, there's a lot of stress. And um, oftentimes with athletes, we'll see that the symptoms actually uh, get better as they exercise and there'll be this delay where they get worse um, after exercise, hours later, even sometimes days later. Um, and that's a, that's a symptom behavior I rely on a lot with the athletes that I work with. So 
there's this whole list of sim- symptom behaviors that we rely on to make this diagnosis. And while none of them are like a standalone sort of slam dunk indication that you're dealing with primary pain, um, the more of these that show up um, in someone dealing with symptoms over time, the more you can feel confident that that's what's going on. And again, like none of these variables, you know, the lack of a mechanism of injury, how long the symptoms have been going on, none of them are standalone. So we need to sort of build a case like a detective to start to help us make this decision about where someone is um, along the continuum or whether we can categorize them into one, one type of pain or another. The last thing that I like to, to bring up is personality traits. And we also have a whole list of personality traits that tend to uh, be very common in people that are dealing with primary pain. And there are like 16 of them. And, you know, I, I'm like, I have like 11 out of the 16. So I'm very much one of these people that, um, you know, deals with, with primary symptoms sort of on a regular basis as an athlete. Uh, I have a lot of personal experience with that. And um, the symptom behaviors are everything from perfectionism to people-pleasing to being hyper-conscientious, having a hard time making decisions. These are personality traits that I like to normalize because we all have them. Um, there are times when they're really helpful, they're really protective, they're really important. Most of us learn these when we were growing up. Either we were born with them or we were conditioned into them because of the family we were raised in. And so when we're young, they become actually very protective. And as we get older, uh, it's helpful to understand when they're helpful and when they actually get us into trouble and cause us stress. And so I like talking about people with how their personality traits are showing up in their lives. Um, are, are they helpful or are, or are they causing suffering? Because it helps us start to make meaning from uh, their symptoms. And when we look at people's life stress and the themes around their life stress, we can see how these personality traits show up in helpful ways and not so helpful ways. And for me, this is one of my favorite parts of the process when people are able to shift their belief and move into this next phase of really understanding their personality traits. And as adults, especially, start to make some really conscious decisions about um, you know, maybe how they want to shift their behavior in their life or shift the situation that they're in um, as they start to understand that um, maybe they're acting out of a more encumbered place that's sort of based in younger um, conditioning and younger behavior. So rating people on this scale of personality traits um, can be really important. And it has, again, it has nothing to do with judging them as people because I find the more of these personality traits people have, the more likable they are, interestingly. Um, so it's not to judge them at all. It's simply to understand when they're working for us and when they're working against us. So hopefully that sort of encapsulates um, some of the, the clinical variables we look at to be able to start to make this decision. And there are certain cases where people have a lot of these, and it's very clear that they're dealing with primary symptoms, and we can tell them that there's nothing wrong with their body. And there are other times when it's kind of more in that gray area, and you have to walk the line of sort of treating the both end. Um, hope that makes sense, and hope that sort of gets to that, the essence of your question. 
Thank you, Charlie, for having the courage to change your own paradigm around pain and for having the compassion to walk alongside your clients in their journey towards finding safety in their body. Keep up the good work and keep blazing trail. As always, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, and please share the podcast with your family and friends. If you'd like to reach out to Charlie, you can find him on his website, mperformance.com, on his YouTube channel, Merrill Performance, also at Charlie Merrill on Instagram. He also hosts a course titled Beyond Pain Education, a training course he does with Dr. Howard Schubiner, MD. Stay tuned for next week's episode where we will bring in Dr. Redding from Western University College of Osteopathic Medicine, an expert in counter strain. Thank you.